0: Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Pain Points, a podcast dedicated to helping you unlock your business challenges. Pulling on our network of clients, partners, experienced employees and industry experts, we wanted to share with you our views and opinions on common business challenges. As a consulting firm that deals with these pain points on a daily basis, we thought we were well-placed to give insights on addressing these challenges. On this episode, Clarissa's CEO, Matt Chung, is joined by agile expert and partner at Beliminal, Matt Roadbank, to discuss all things agile. Enjoy the episode. Hello, I'm Matt, CEO of Clarisys. To make it confusing, I'm here today with another Matt. Uh, Matt, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Matt, uh, Roadmite,
1: uh, a partner at Beliminal. i um, been working with Matt for quite some time in the past,
0: so yeah. So what, I think we first met in 2007?
1: If I stretch it, 2006,
0: but yeah, 2007. Yeah, where... Um, We were looking at an enterprise uh, Agile implementation, I guess, probably before it was popular Uh, and how we might go about delivering technology change to a fairly complex global organisation that had managed to fail delivering it a few times over Um, and how we might introduce Agile to a fairly cynical bunch of stakeholders, I think.
1: Yes, they were, definitely. We did a pretty good job, I think. I think it went all right. Very well. So I think in the space of two years, we took delivery times down from about 24 months to seven weeks in production. It did take us two years to get there and quite a a large shift, sort of six months in, to do a sort of technology rebuild at the front end. And then, then, uh, yeah, it went pretty well after that, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the one of the moments for me was um, we when we started off we had a wall full of post-its to do um, uh, post-its and cards to do sprint planning and uh, I think I calculated at one point that we ran through something like 20,000 cards and luckily we moved to version one to hold stories in uh, otherwise it would have been quite difficult
1: yeah I used to weekends i go away for I think it was three teams over one month uh, yeah it's the last time I do task-based tracking (laughs) on cards I have a picture we'll put up on this blog as well it still shows that but uh, weekends are a bit of a nightmare coming and and the aircon have blown it all down so yes first
0: first lesson (laughs) is never do large scale agile using cards on a wall because either the aircon destroys them or somebody who's a bit jealous of you comes down and rips them off the wall at the weekend
1: I suppose on top of that I would still use cards but probably at a a program kind of larger rather than task-based level so doing six, ten hour tasks on cards for three teams over a month, is a lot of paper.
0: It was a lot of paper. And you couldn't track it. We would have had to have extra kind of PMO people in order to track the burn down on each task, to put it in a spreadsheet, and then track the burn down. Um, which kind of goes against all the principles you're trying to go, go with anyway.
1: Yeah, always a challenge they're trying to get the team to track their own tasks in a sprint. But yes, get them to update their own tools.
0: That's true. but I, and, and similarly, was one of the challenges for Clarices is actually making sure people record their time properly. But what you find is that you have to make sure that you kind of empower the person closest to the task to tell you how much time they've done, because there's no way of actually doing it centrally. In the example with your... Um, with the PMO running around to check how many hours were on each card, they'd spend most of their time chasing people to say, can you update the data, when actually we'd have been better off just telling the person to update their data. Yeah. I
1: do try and get people to focus on time remaining on tasks rather than time spent. It's going kind to of show a better picture of where you are. It's always useful to have that information. It's not something I'd lead with, but definitely look at time remaining. So what I like about Scrum, especially as an approach for doing Agile, is the fact that teams get better at forecasting estimation, as long as you keep them together. I think it's a, a skill that maybe people will lose. I think what's missing sometimes with the agile implementations that I do see is lack of basic project management skills, sort of moving away a little bit from that.
0: I think there's a bit of, we're agile, we don't need a plan. And then, we're agile, we don't need to write anything down, which I think we all know is a fallacy. I guess that leads us to a question, really. So why do you think agile at scale is different from one team running?
1: That it's interesting for me, coming from a sort of Scrum perspective, is the lack of guidance out there, I suppose, around how you might go about it, but FM imitation, is slightly different. If you go to purists, they would say that actually, here's Scrum as a framework, uh, there's one of the tools, or here's Kanban, um, work it out yourself how to, how to go about that. I think what's interesting is there's a lot of patterns that keep cropping up for me, that, that, that are similar in other places, I think there's some usefulness for that. And I think Scout Agile Framework is quite useful because it brings a lot of those patterns together, However, I think you a little bit careful about how you use them, not wholesale as a set of tools. And there are some things that you need to sort of bring together, but I think above and beyond just the team, I think people realise the amount of level of coordination required, the time required to do that. They try and fill their teams up too much of tasks rather than think about the coordination need above and beyond that. As you think about putting stuff together, they look at going very fast without thinking about reflecting on or, or inspecting the product they built, and it works end-to-end or not. They don't seem to be looking too much to that. So requires environments especially, quite a heavy investment to do that.
0: Yeah, and and when you say end-to-end there, uh, I guess one of our clients is trying to deliver an end-to-end process, yet the way they're set up is in vertical silos of specific functions. Is that the kind of problem you see when, when you're trying to break down a large-scale implementation? that people focus on building a vertical rather than building the end-to-end slice?
1: That's a tendency because also organisations are arranged that way and mindsets are arranged that way. Leaders maybe are focused on their own department rather than thinking systemically and think what's best for our, for our customer. I've seen that change some places with the organisation structure changes but I think still in, endemically behind that people are very much focused on their own department or own silo to get their own stuff work done rather than think about working collectively together. And I do joke sometimes. I feel like a bit of a marriage counselor in large organisations, <laughs> trying to get people from different disciplines to work together effectively.
0: Have you seen anyone really achieve the dream of the kind of cross-functional team uh, that really works? As I guess all of us hope it will work.
1: I've seen it on a small scale, work really, really well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Over time, it does work. Maybe not immediately, but over time, you do see people working better end to end. And I think that the bigger challenge is about. Technology sets kind of breaking down some barriers to get the products out to market, and that's half the challenge. How can you get the team thinking about their interaction impacts on the customer and seeing that impact? So I think what's interesting about trying to engage people at work is then make it feel they're making a difference. It's quite hard to feel you're not making a difference if you're just shifting boxes, then you go to someone else to try and shift out. I want to see that I'm working a difference too, and then market. So where I do see it work well or I hear about it working well. Uh, areas where teams can really see the impact of their, their product, if not immediately, then over time.
0: I guess there's a key point there that it's quite easy to get, well, that's that's harsh, it's easier to get a single team to achieve cross-functional greatness. Um, but as soon as you add in an extra two or three teams, then that's actually where you start looking at SAFE and where you start thinking about, well, actually, I need to put a bit more thought into how my backlog's shaped or how I've arranged my slicing of my features.
1: Uh, that's the key for me actually. I've seen some really awful Agile implementations. Many of them have a really poor product backlog and I think you can drive an awful lot from a decent product backlog and put a lot of effort around that. Obviously, if you think about the way you set up the teams, even if the teams are concentrated around technology sets, I think what you can do is achieve that, that cross functionality through the way they shape the product yeah. backlog items. I call them collective work products that they force people to work together. So you talk an awful lot about self-organization theory lady called Glenda Oyang put something together called Model for Self-Organisation Human Systems Has three elements of container differences and exchanges and for me it's about setting a container up that forces people to work together whether that's an organisational container or a piece of work but like an end-to-end test that kind of thing anything like that gets more differences involved and therefore they have to interact more and more often so anything you can do that as, as a high level concept I think works really well at lots of different
0: levels So you mean that you you are allowed to self-organize within a framework that's been thought about quite carefully
1: bounded autonomy yeah I think someone called it which i think is a really nice word people think that teams should be self-organizing they can be but without they need to have a level of boundary around that definitely that they can self-organize within
0: yeah that that's a really interesting point actually because i think originally When you and I worked together, we put an awful lot of thought into how the teams were organized and where their boundaries sat. And in some of the other work I've seen is at times people have assumed that self-organization really meant that people thought about the systemic impact of their decisions. And that doesn't always happen because you might not have done agile before. You might have done it in a different environment. And as soon as you move into a much more complex environment, things tend to break down.
1: What we did there was actually make sure we have some people that sat across the teams and their roles to help coordinate that level anyway, to think about that, that also spent some of the time working the teams and guiding the teams. So we had some very good system architects that kind of looked across teams, helped them grow the team members, but also looked at shaping the product backlog items together and did some work ahead, some analysis ahead too, which doesn't always happen. Um, but I think also doing that allows that systemic view as well, allows people to see a bit further beyond and where they just start doing their work. People need to look up and, and look down as
0: well. I think people struggle to look up sometimes because they're attempting to run before they can walk. Often, the product backlog refinement doesn't get enough attention from the technical team because they're too busy trying to deliver on something that they've attempted to commit to.
1: And I'm seeing the same thing with people scaling with, uh, so take it safe as an example, there's other examples out there like less, but um, what I'm finding is, I was speaking to someone the other day, and they were finding that even going through their PSIs planning, which is a three-month window. They were heading to the beginning of that without their backlog refined well enough. And so I just told them to take a bit more time to, to work it through, really. Going into that, that quarter or that 10-week cycle with just not enough idea of what they were doing. Um, and so it's actually trying to get that refinement ongoing, rolling, yeah. rather than just that big stop and start again. I think it's not just the teams also that are working in detail. It's actually up front as well. Um, the business don't have enough time to think about what they want either. So yeah. it's, it's, it's both those tensions, really. Well, and
0: also often you find that Part of the reason the business don't have enough time to think up front is that one they're engaged in a budget cycle, but two, they see the burn rate of the development team and feel they have to feed the development team at that pace, and so they feed them with stuff that isn't ready enough, and then they wonder why the burn down decreases, the number of story points um, delivered goes down, because what they're giving them isn't well enough defined for the for the tech team to deliver on, and and that's partly driven by the fact that the model that supports this hasn't moved from before in that you can't scale the teams up and down quite like perhaps you want to and also there's some kind of optimism that works that says that i need 50 people because that's how fast i can go
1: it's also been a decision maybe what comes next and that also doesn't really help things coming well causes things coming late potentially so I always talk about it being a bit of a balance between sort of um, making sure you don't have a backlog, a bit like a desert, completely empty and dry. It's actually make sure you, you get a nice balance between the two. And that includes the people doing the work in the teams as well, look ahead, look enough ahead to get things refined. If you take a look at the agile principles, it's give the team the problem to solve. Yeah. And I think if the, what we've just been talking about isn't about that, it's about people telling people, teams, what to deliver, I think there's a, there's a balance where we can set a, a container where the teams can decide themselves, and I think they make the team a bit bigger with more differences, including the business to work more closely together. How do you force that to work closely together rather than being outside the team as a stakeholder feed stuff to the Scrum teams, if you
0: like. I think that's a really important distinction. So we use a slightly different delivery process from a traditional Scrum point of view because we, uh, within Clarisys, we have a basically a best efforts delivery team. What we've just changed to is the idea that we'll define some fairly high-level OKRs and then allow the teams to execute on those OKRs, plan out what they want to do, tell us how far they can get through them and let them drive based on a benefit statement and this is the outcome we want to achieve. So team, you go and do that, which is to your point about boxes and boundaries, that's actually a bigger box, but with more autonomy for the team to execute on. And we've seen that be much more successful. People are much more motivated. They like the fact that they can own how they do it. What we see in our corporate clients, though, is that they struggle to achieve that piece of getting the business into the discussion with the technical team. It is still, there's still a barrier between the two.
1: Mm. And when you say OKRs, I mean objectives and key results? Yeah. Um, popularised by Intel in the 90s. Popularised
0: by Intel and then taken on by Google. Um, there's a great book, Measure What Matters, that kind of explodes how how that went yeah. about.
1: Yeah, And I, I think what's interesting to me there as well is is making sure that there's other ways of doing that too. It's, it's being clear on the objectives rather than just giving to team solutions. And I think it happens quite a lot. I think we say, here we decide what to do go and do this stuff rather than being a collective discussion. I think with that discussion you're gonna more likely to get that engagement you talk about as well, that motivation for teams, more engaged teams. And actually what you do want to do with that as well, if you if you can get it set up in the right way, the way that um, Google did it for example, is that on a coursey basis you might set some team level objectives, but then the individual objectives are set outside that too, so you kinda of nest that and it's more of a more of a conversation up front, rather than being told what to do, here's a solution about it. And actually the teams help solve the problem if you're trying to find the best way of doing that
0: as well. I think also there's the opportunity to make sure you have alignment across your functional silos that, yes. that you were talking about earlier, right? Because that, underneath all of this, is a bunch of organisational politics that I think you had an example of that, that sometimes hamstrings the ability of the individual team to execute on the goal of the organisation.
1: That comes back to a point we said earlier about the potential silos, the way people team to set up, etc. Organisations tend to set up that way because it kind of fits the way they've always been organised, and so switching probably from more of a rather than departmental to more of a product alignment to business side things. Actually, that sometimes it shows itself when you set up projects or business projects with a with a business uh, initiative. Um, it kind of forces those teams to work in that way because they're delivering some out to, to the marketplace. Seeing organisations organised like that and have some key objectives and key results around that, and dedicated teams around more consumer or product focused structures should hopefully align people across those as well rather than being independent departments that are thinking more about their own objectives rather than the systemic objectives for the whole organization or that product
0: i think that's really important i guess for me that's one of the things that perhaps we don't talk about enough in stopping agile being successful we know that agile is successful in both the product world and in the enterprise process world but it's not consistently successful in the same way that that many things aren't consistently successful and one of the things that i would say is consistent in in the failures is that there isn't really a trust culture um, and the willingness to change isn't there i don't know what you think
1: it takes successful delivery to build trust i think we've seen it before where you you set up a programme to set up. has some very clear business objectives and benefits to deliver. Uh, that can use some freedom, and that should build some trust. And actually from there, it's okay, that worked. Let's, let's look at scaling out. But actually has got to be some how risk-averse are the leaders in actually making sure that that goes again and beyond that. So even then, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, what's interesting for me is that that's, that's, say that binds that structure of the end-to-endness, and there are some terms out there for it. I think something called value streams tribes is called that as well so sometimes people use the term tribes ing sort of set their organizations like up like that so maybe they've got things set up around here, you can know, kind of, um personal lending or, or or home banking might be some of their the big organizations and i'm seeing that work quite well where people have set up those piece of organizations and they have support from from some some business people too but it's not i suppose that the, the balance of individuals aren't Sort of one to one from the business to the technology teams, but it's kind of a enough enough support there to drive the right direction and get the kind of quite results at the, at the, at the product backlog kind of level, working closely with getting the right solutions that are a business fit, a technical fit, but also usability and risk, etc., as well. So and compliant, so all those things fit together. Getting those things cross-functional decision making at the at the
0: right time, the right level as well. And I think one of the points behind getting trust in in what's being delivered is understanding what it is you were trying to deliver in the first place and what the benefits were what we sometimes see is not so much focus on benefit realization but more on here I've delivered this thing uh, and now I can move on to the next thing which for me at least is only half the challenge because there's no point delivering something if nobody adopts it
1: build it and they will come or maybe not well, that was a dot com group, wasn't it? I, I think also, onto the things piece, I think people were told to go and build things. They'd build this thing rather than we want to achieve this collectively together. Yeah. How do we achieve that? And I think it's just a, a shift in leadership style as well. What's interesting about the benefits realisation is how long it takes to see that. It can be quite a long time to see that kind of benefit. You work in a larger enterprise, there's quite a lot of effort required and time required to deliver something that's tangible usable, and sometimes it's not always beneficial to live to a small increment you know, it's two weeks worth of work isn't enough or even a quarter's worth of work maybe isn't enough so a few more of those need to happen before it's pushed out so then I think it kind of gets lost the noise a little bit I think if you're looking at some clear outcomes how can, how can we get ourselves in a position as an organisation or as a, a value stream if you like to, to look at constantly are we shifting that needle to get the right benefits on an ongoing basis and that's, that's quite a challenge either uh, technically or process wise or, or, or change wise to try and get something together that gets that inertia
0: that's a really interesting point actually because i agree it can be difficult to get if you're thinking in technology terms it can be difficult to get enough weight into what you're delivering to achieve benefit for the organization but is that just a symptom of the team not being cross-functional enough and only thinking in technology terms because if you're thinking in culture process and data and technology terms then there are always things that you can find that you could resolve in a sprint and you could deliver change out of but I think we get trapped into and this has only just come to me into obsessing about technology delivery perhaps because of that set of cultural things we talked about earlier where we aren't setting an outcome which is actually we'd like to see I don't know a five percent increase in revenue over two years well, actually, the first thing to do there is not to go and look for some technology solution like, I don't know, marketing software or CRM. The first thing to do is to look at, well, how are your accounts distributed or how many calls do we miss, that kind of thing. And if you were a cross-functional team, I think you might... The teams get up. too
1: excited about delivering things. Initially, there's a bit of inertia to kick off. And I don't think effort always gets spent in the right place, in the right way. And so a lot of waste effort goes on in the... In the idea of showing progress rather than stopping thinking, have a bit of time about it, having patience around that as well. I think it's interesting about even, I agree, you could deliver something small and valuable in two to four weeks, but then it's accepting the level of change required as well That when you push that out. It's fine for Amazon to make change every 11 seconds to their production environment potentially, but their customer base can accept that what can the environment accept or your, what can the environment that you're working in, how often can it accept change around that? If you're doing process for a member of call center, people, how many people, how many changes can they accept on a monthly basis?
0: Um, I think you get to the point if you deliver too much change that the business gets tired of it and can't cope with it. Um, or perhaps we need to first change the mindset of the people yes, accepting the change. Yes. Because as a consumer, you're very used to I don't know, Google's interface changing every day with a different doodle, or as you say, a new, a new iPhone appears and the gestures are different, uh, or there's a bunch of new features. And you kind of accept that, or a bug was there and it's not there the next day. But we're in a business context. We're less able to accept those changes, partly because of the, the different interplay between the different functions and the fact that you need to explain it to a possibly irate customer on the other end of the phone. But we're kind of bound by that and so, maybe, maybe there is something that says, well, let's look at why those things are difficult to absorb and change the way that yes. we accept them. I think it's also
1: maybe having a conversation with the people getting the change as well. How often could you accept this? Given the pains that you're, you're, you're having a day to day basis, could you wait longer or do you want it to be quicker than that? I think it's interesting about, about historically and culturally how we deliver change in organisations. Maybe we're set with a certain rhythm or a certain historic view on things. Maybe just to, to reflect on that and, and look to break that cycle as well.
0: Because in your call center example, if a couple of the call center reps were in the team delivering the change, maybe that would change. I, I think what seems to me there point. is,
1: is I have this conversation. People trying to get customers get, get stuff to test early. Let's talk about that. Get, get some feedback early. We talk a lot about that. What happens quite a lot as well is, is the business as usual kind of runs on for the business. They're running so lean or so tight operational cost wise, actually they can't avoid. They can't afford it to get people from the business to get involved, yeah. the BAU to do that. And again that. It, Effort in the wrong place again, I think, goes there because actually you end up building things that maybe aren't as effective as they could be.
0: Yeah, because your business engages too late for very good reasons that they were involved in doing BAU, so the investment pot you've got actually would have been better off spent letting the operation be less lean initially. And, and it's funny, but, The business, I
1: suppose that if you look at the organisations that do that, they look at their own department and look at the impacts on their own department, rather than systemically supporting this new product delivery and, and the benefits of the whole organisation. And again, it's a, a bit of a mindset shift around where these people best spend their time, as it were.
0: Yeah, and I guess there's another thing that comes to mind around that. So historically, a lot of business change has been about project delivery, whereas Actually, what we're talking about here is that there is a continual improvement culture that breaks down the distinction between project delivery and BAU. You have to accept that change is going to be ongoing in an agile environment. Actually, I think that's one of the major differences, is that over a year, the pace of work will be continual and pressurized, potentially, but your project never stops. There are always incremental benefits to be gained, and it's a decision over whether you want to gain those incremental benefits or not. And that changes yeah. the balance. It's interesting, process. I
1: mean, continuing improvement process has been around since the 90s anyway, right? Um, and as with organisation recently, we, we have a conversation with sort of product managers there and there's, there's not really that, that connection between the benefits or the outcomes we're looking to get and, the ben- and are we actually achieving that? Are we shifting the right mean and right measures? They don't really focus on that, they're still focusing on delivering off, off a set of things, off a set of features and never quite sure if that's causing the right outcome or not. As an organisation, they, they've, they've got a very mature product in the marketplace, there's not a burning platform that a change, but they, they realise they could be better at doing that as well. But again, even if you if you do change that that structure, the mindset doesn't always shift potentially. And I think that's an interesting perspective, even though you change the structure. How do you get that shift in perspectives? I think a lot of that starts with the people who look at the products. It's, who tests your work is my question I get with product owners or product managers who tests your work, and it should be the marketplace, really, and have a scorecard around that as well.
0: It's really quite interesting. So the Amazon versus the enterprise, um, we do a lot of work with B2B processes for from end to end. And where Amazon can A, B test, you know, the colour of this product or the size of this font for a price makes a difference and get the answer to the, that question of, did I make an impact from the change I've made? I haven't seen anyone partly for good reason, be able to A, B, test the impact of their benefit on the process. So the only way I can think of doing that is to use some kind of process simulation to say, right, we're going to change this process here. What impact does it have over there? Because you probably wouldn't want to do that. I don't know that anyone is sophisticated enough to be able to execute that in a real-life environment, except perhaps between two different business units who have a similar characteristic. I haven't come across an organisation doing that because that is the way to prove whether you're managing your benefits well. But it's probably not appropriate for, for a B2B market. Did you go back to simulating
1: that that change, that shift? That's,
0: actually, there's lots of tools out there, lots of
1: focus out there on on on, uh, on new product build, mostly from Silicon Valley. I think a lot of people are trying to take those those techniques and approaches to, to large enterprises, but we don't fit that well, depending on where the products are because a lot of that stuff around lean startup kind of approach to, to product delivery is great for something that's unknown, sort of fire out their innovation, trying to break new markets, but when you've got a really established product and you're just trying to tweak it and to get a sort of more operational savings, etc, or trying to get some other benefits or just trying to get a step in the market there's not an awful lot around that helps support that, I don't see.
0: We see quite a few people asking about well How do I know which parts of my product people are using? And how do I understand where I should concentrate my effort to improve that product? And I guess I'd ask the same question. How data-led are the assessments of whether the teams delivering that product are delivering on their goals? So it's very easy to say, emotionally, I feel that this team is performing really well. But to your point, the only place where that's true is if the market in, in the I'm selling widgets, well, one team achieves 20% increase in sales of widgets, the other achieves a 20% decrease. It's pretty clear which which team is, is better. And, and it actually doesn't matter whether that team is behaving in a way that is not in line with whatever best practice we think is right they have managed to achieve the outcome that you want. So you have to look at that team and say, "That why is that team performing well and why is the other one not performing it's well?
1: It's a point there again. So it's like having conversations with, with different organisations. It's even when they want to be data-led, the data is not there to collect about the application where it's being used because it been so busy yeah. delivering things yeah. or, or stuff for so long. They haven't stopped to look at where the measures need to put in place. And when they do try and do that, potentially sometimes there's a, there's a pressure to keep doing the things rather than the measures and I think there's a, there's definitely a product discipline there to educate organisations and make it very very clear I think and hold the mirror up a little bit to, to actually showing what value we deliver over time and for product managers to really really look at the more data led kind of approach but at the same time trying, to, make, trying to, to, to fight for putting those measures in their product as well so they can effectively show these things as well.
0: Yeah, and to also potentially think about what are the leading indicators to get behind that problem of it takes so long to realise whether you've made the benefit that you were hoping you were making um, and think about, well, actually, how am I going to start to see when that's working uh, and to be able to trend that over time and all the, those good things that you see in some places. I think sometimes people get
1: too lost in all the measures too. There's so many different measures out there. They can't see the width of the trees, so which ones really matter?
0: Does this all come back around to the define your outcome well and kind of define your key results or whatever, you know, whatever OKR okay, similar thing? Because as long as you can measure it, then I think you so. should be doing it's it. It's
1: that shift, isn't it, really? And people making it part of their business as usual, putting it in place up front, than just sort of the next big thing and actually make in-baked part of their process for doing, for doing this stuff. But I think also make sure the container for the teams is set big enough and wide enough so you get enough perspectives in that as well. And and dedicating the people to that. And run an experiment. I tell people just rather than just trying to make it's a wholesale change to everywhere, do an experiment somewhere, build some trust, and then from there hopefully start to if it's tweak it, make sure it's working well enough, and then start to maybe look at other places in the organisation. But unless it's improving delivery, if it doesn't, then okay, maybe you learn something. Try something else.
0: I was gonna ask you that actually. So how would you recommend people should start on a journey to being more agile is it at the top or is it at It's the funny as
1: some research by steve denning he did some research in some organizations where they've been doing agile I feel like um and it usually starts from the bottom generally they come and get that that groundswell but what he has seen from a few places well where it started from the top but you need both uh you need the, the enough from the bottom to, to get enough traction of groundswell around that at the right time potentially some support from the top to be able to help grow that without sort of from the top it just sort of fades away again having some some drivers from the top and then trying to embed that in the organisation that seems failure too so it doesn't really get picked up so it's kind of like that, that happy mix for you too personally i like to start small um, get something working and then uh, and then start to grow the teams over time I think most people I talk to or most organisations trying it are doing that at Different scales, and I think that's you learn an awful lot f- more from that, and you can think about how I might uh, scale that out over time. So there's other ch- other challenges. What's interesting for me, if you start small, it's making sure the rest of the organisation come with you, at least be cognizant of it. See a little bit of us than them, the new agile shiny people versus the other guys are still trying to run the organisation that we've been here. We're keeping the lights on and keeping the money running in. And what are you guys doing? Really, I think it's, it's it's making sure you don't build barriers as you go about that, which is which is difficult.
0: So be agile. To be agile, but in a sense, to be way. Be sensitive. Anyway, we don't like change
1: generally. I think even when you're in, a, you're, you're challenging people's status. You're challenging where they might change to as well. So they're at an individual level, people have to be cognizant actually, um, emotionally intelligent about it. If you like, so cognizant that uh, this involves an impact on it and different people. So kind of find the best way forward together, rather than not talking about it. I think people are too busy in delivery again, too often, rather than thinking about and trying to walk through walls, and break down back, and not really bringing people with them, bringing together yeah. as well. I think there's a yeah. it's a big part of that as well. And some organisations don't really support that collectively. It's more of a competition sort of going on potentially around different departments. So again, it's about those containers, breaking stuff down and bring it beyond people to make do what's best for the organisation, rather than best for
0: my own department, their own individual. Which could be quite challenging. So we've covered a awful lot of topics not necessarily in the most structured way there but if someone was coming to you and they said what should I do I'm trying to make this thing better what would your advice to
1: them be meet people where they are the first thing Uh, it's about that change piece again people don't like being told that it's not agile it's not this it's not that it's okay so where are you now for me better is looking at what you're trying to achieve and Are you showing daily progress or weekly progress towards improving that? I think if you can start there, that's not a bad place to start. And from there, hopefully, we can start to to grow from that.
0: And I think what I take from this conversation on that topic is that if you start there and then you have enough patience for the team to develop the right way of addressing what you're trying to achieve and allow them to to focus and to kick away the stuff that doesn't matter, then you might... Yes, I be think it's creating that space for continuous improvement. So allowing them to say, actually, it would be better to spend this money in BAU to release space for us to do our work together rather than across and the
1: someone fence. having the right conversations or thinking that way to help have the right decision makers agree to that approach as well.
0: So there's a summary thanks very much matt i hope our listeners enjoyed that um and hopefully we'll see you soon